Hey everybody, how's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name's Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? Oh, I'm doing okay. We're supposed to have a mini heat wave coming up pretty soon, so in anticipation of that, before the high temperatures hit, I decided to make a whole bunch of pesto pasta salad, so we've got a fridge full of that, which is nice. I guess I had not really realized before this that the difference between pesto pasta salad and pesto pasta is that pesto pasta salad is cold. Which I guess means that the sole defining characteristic of salad is temperature. Which is welcome news, because I'd been planning on eating healthier, and it turns out I'm already eating a ton of salad. As a matter of fact, in my 20s I subsisted on a diet almost exclusively of salad. Pizza salad that my roommates brought home from work with them. So it's kind of weird that I wasn't in better shape. Anyway, we've got kind of a different show for you this week. Corey wasn't able to make it, but we have an awesome guest co-host, and we're going to take a look at a couple of early appearances of Valkyrie. Sort of. I mean, we are going to take a look at them, but they're sort of Valkyrie. You'll see. Anyway, without any further ado, let's, uh, do this. And my good-for-many-things brother, Corey, had signed up for a correspondence course from Miskatonic University, and unfortunately downloaded that which he could not put back. While he's dealing with that, we are very fortunate to be blessed with a fantastic guest co-host, Sarah Century. Sarah is a writer and pop culture critic. A lot of her work focuses on comic books and horror, and she is the co-host of the delightful podcast Bitches on Comics, which I have been loving lately. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, I'm so excited to be here. We're talking about stuff I just am obsessed with and will talk to anybody about. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I'm glad that you're going to be talking to us about it. So one of the reasons that I wanted to have you on is I've been listening to a ton of bitches on comics lately. And first of all, it's just a great show and I wanted to have you on regardless. But we're covering some Defender stuff right now with the rest of the run that has brought up a bunch of stuff about Valkyrie, and I just wanted to do a focus on Valkyrie. She's one of my favorite characters, and I heard you talk about her on Bitches on Comics, and you've written an article about her for Sci-Fi Wire, I believe it was, mm -hmm. and I just wanted to kind of get your thoughts on the character, and then we'll take a look at some of her early appearances, sort of. I mean, not technically her, maybe? <laughs> It gets complicated with her. <laughs> yeah, but I think we're just going to call this episode Valkyrie Origins. <laughs> and hopefully it will involve less of us dropping to our knees and bellowing no at the heavens than X-Men Origins did. But uh, we're looking at comics by Roy Thomas, so there might be some of that. A little bit, definitely. <laughs> yeah. 
I love Valkyrie so much. This is a character who, even in the very beginning, whenever I was just a little tater tot reading comics all day long, I absolutely gravitated towards this character. I think the first that I read of her was much later than this in the series. It was a maybe new Defenders, I think, whenever she was really, you know, feeling some kind of way about Hellcat getting married. <laughs> and, you know, I, I was probably like 10 or 12, maybe, whenever I was reading these comics. So at the time, I wasn't like, oh, I love this because I'm queer and, like, Valkyrie's obviously queer. But I loved everything about her. I thought that she was just the best. And whenever I read back these old issues, I'm just like, you know what? I still love her. Like <laughs> I love her, you know, in the movies. I love her just across the board. I think that she's one of Marvel's strongest characters that doesn't always get treated that way. Yeah. I'm glad you brought up that she doesn't always get treated that way because when I've told people that Valkyrie is one of my favorite characters, they'll sometimes ask oh, what's a good storyline for her? Mm. And I'm often put in the position of just being like, um, well, there's a couple of panels in issue 14. <laughs> and I mean, I think with any comic book character, creating the character is kind of a collaborative effort between the creator and the audience. Mm -hmm. But I think especially with the Bronze Age, if it's a woman character, the audience is forced to do a lot of the heavy lifting because <laughs> I think it was, if not exclusively, certainly almost exclusively straight white men working for both companies as writers. And they had a tendency to not so much view their female characters as characters as much as plot points and maybe decoration. <laughs> the sexy lamp, right? Where you're just yeah. like, hey, sexy lamp. <laughs> right. It's her again. She's here to do something that is, you know, very utility based and, you know, not not take up too much space. But yeah, I 100% agree with you. And it is difficult. It's also difficult later. Like, it, she's a character that is really consistently not treated that well. Like, you see, you know, even in something like The Fearless Defenders, that series really kind of just goes off the rails so often that I feel like it doesn't end up being a great Valkyrie story, even though there's parts of it that I really like. And that's how it is, kind of, with yeah. Valkyrie, where you're like, yeah, like you said, I love these two pages. It's really cool when she's telling, you know, Barbara's husband off and, like, <laughs> the Defenders, but the fact that that guy gets so much screen time at all is difficult and ah, she's just one of those characters where i'm like hopefully sometime somebody is gonna write a great valkyrie story because she deserves it yeah i think cory in a recent episode chose valkyrie as his sucka for the issue because she wasn't <laughs> acting like the strong confident woman that he likes to see her portrayed as and i was mm -hmm. like do you mean that you would like to see her portrayed as because i can't really think of a ton of examples of it being the case but the premise of the character is so strong mm -hmm. that I think if you like her, then you just end up filling in all the blanks and 100%. then just get really frustrated that she's not being shown the way you feel like she should be. Exactly. I'm one of those people who can fill in the blanks all day long, you know, so I'll, I'll be reading a comic and, you know, be like, this comic was great. And then somebody else will read it and be like, listen, that was a sexist monstrosity. Like, why did you recommend that to me? And I'm like, right, you read good things. Sometimes I read bad things and I find what I like about them regardless. And here's the list of no prizes for why she was behaving that way and what was really going on with her. 
<laughs> it's always the patriarchy. She's right. She's <laughs> right about everything. Yeah. Well, are you ready to just kind of dive in and talk about the first of these comics? Yes. <laughs> okay. Well, then, without any further ado, let's uh, do this. <laughs> Avengers, number 83, December, 1970. Come on in, the revolution's fine. Written by Roy Thomas, trotted by John Buscema, inked by Tom Palmer, lettered by Herb Cooper, and edited by Stan Lee. Defensive lineup. Well, there aren't actually any defenders per se, so, uh, assembled Avengers? No, because only some of the heroes in this are Avengers. So, um... Some superheroes who appear in this book. The Wasp. Medusa. Goliath. The Clint Barton version. Black Panther. Scarlet Witch. Black Widow. Quicksilver. The Vision. And... Valkyrie. Sorta. Janet Van Dyne, a.k.a. The Wasp, and her shitty husband, Hank Pym, a.k.a. Yellow Jacket, a.k.a. Ant-Man, a.k.a. Giant-Man, a.k.a. Goliath, but not the Goliath in this issue, a.k.a. Inspector and Sector, have been off on a mission in Alaska. I guess Janet must have ditched Hank in the Arctic, good call, because she returns to the Avengers Mansion by herself. The diminutive do-gooder is more than slightly taken aback at the sight that greets her when she enters the conference room. Seated around the table are... Janet's fellow Avenger, the Scarlet Witch, longtime Avengers ally, the Black Widow, a lady who maybe the Avengers met one time, Medusa, and, standing at the head of the table, is a rad-looking stranger dressed in a one-piece bathing suit version of Norse battle armor who introduces herself as Valkyrie. Hooray! The Scarlet Witch informs the Wasp that this impromptu crime-fighting cabal is named the Liberators and that they have taken over the mansion as their new headquarters. Janet's understandably taken aback by this declaration, and asks for some clarification. Valkyrie is like, My origin story? I'm so glad you asked. See, I'm a super smart scientist, but my boss is a stupid sexist jerk named Dr. Irwin, who never listens to me. I was working in my lab late one night, when my eyes beheld an eerie sight. Wait, no they didn't. I was thinking of the Monster Mash. I've got to stop starting sentences that way. Actually, my eyes didn't behold anything, because I was so exhausted and overworked that I fell asleep while I was holding some chemicals. Anyway, when I woke up, I found that I had super strength, so I made myself this outfit and decided to dedicate my life to destroying male supremacy and beating the shit out of chauvinist pigs. Everyone agrees that that is a plausible origin and an admirable mission statement, but Medusa is like, that's cool and all, and definitely how science works. But just before the Wasp showed up, you were saying that the Avengers suck and are our enemies, and that's why we're taking all their stuff. Care to elaborate? In response, Valkyrie shows the gang a slideshow, which is essentially a montage of a whole bunch of times that the male Avengers belittled, dismissed, condescended to, and took credit for the work of their female counterparts. It's pretty convincing. Then she turns to Medusa and is like, also, it doesn't explain why you're here or have anything to do with the Avengers, but your husband Black Bolt, King of the Inhumans, he's a total dick too. Fuck that guy. Medusa is like, sold. 
Everyone agrees that the male Avengers are a bunch of sexist dipshits who need to get beat up, and the newly formed Liberators are just the people for the job. They head outside, and Val is like, Everyone hop into this fancy chariot that I built with science. It's drawn by these awesome horses that I bred and raised, because that's also a thing I do. And they can fly. Because again, science. Liberators away! Meanwhile, in a secluded mansion on the outskirts of Rutland, Vermont, what appears to be a group of superheroes and supervillains are hanging out together drinking beers and sodas. Hmm. The doorbell rings and Nighthawk gets up to answer it. Nighthawk? What's he doing here? Well, it turns out that what Nighthawk is doing here is nothing, because that's not Nighthawk, and those other superheroes and supervillains aren't superheroes and supervillains. They're just revelers who are pre-partying before Rutland's big annual Halloween costume parade. Ursat's Nighthawk heads to the door and greets the new arrivals, who are another group of people dressed as superheroes. The difference is, this group of colorfully clad revelers actually are superheroes. Well, superheroes and Clint Barton. Burn! The Vision, Goliath, Black Panther, and Quicksilver pile in through the door. Fake Nighthawk takes off his mask and reveals his identity. Wow, just like the real Nighthawk would. This guy did his homework. His name is Tom Fagan, and he's a local parade enthusiast. He explains that this year the parade has a special guest. A famous mathematician and scientist named Dr. Irwin is going to be the Grandmaster. Okay, so first of all, wow, a mathematician? This parade is going to be fucking lit. And B... Didn't Valkyrie say that her jerkwad former boss was named Dr. Irwin? I just checked my notes, and yes, she did. Hmm. Apparently, there have been some kidnapping threats against Dr. Irwin, so Tom decided to call the Avengers and see if they could participate in the parade and act as security. Man, I'd normally be worried that a 15-foot-tall dude like Goliath might attract too much attention to be effective as a security guard, but with a big celebrity like a mathematician there, I bet no one will even notice him. While they wait for the parade to start, Tom introduces the Avengers to the other guests, including a young couple named Roy and Jean Thomas. For some reason, those names sound kind of familiar. A few minutes later, the parade gets underway. Things go smoothly at first, but as the procession reaches downtown, the main float is boarded by some uninvited guests. The Masters of Evil. Wait, He-Man and his buddies? No, that's the Masters of the Universe. The groundbreaking researchers of human sexuality who penned Human Sexual Response and Human Sexual Inadequacy? No, that's Masters and Johnson. The Masters of Evil are a group of supervillains originally founded by Baron Zemo, whose lineup over the years has undergone more changes than Menudo's. Their current roster consists of Claw, a jerkhole who controls sound. The Melter, a jerkhole who melts stuff. Whirlwind, a jerkhole who spins around real fast and can make his legs into a little tornado. And Radioactive Man, a radioactive jerkhole. The Masters of Evil heard that Dr. Irwin had invented a fancy new MacGuffin and reckoned that they ought to kidnap him and steal it. So that's what they try to do. The Avengers notice that the Masters of Evil are starting some shit, so they do their best to thwart them. Everybody fights everybody. Perhaps surprisingly, the Avengers are kind of getting their butts whipped. The Melter melts the ground under the Vision, trapping the android in molten tar, 
Claw tumbles a brick wall onto the Black Panther. Whirlwind flings a bunch of cars and stuff at Quicksilver. And Radioactive Man... Radioactives! At Goliath! Like, super hard. Also, he shoots him with a cement gun, which seems like a weird thing for him to have. Maybe it's a radioactive cement gun. Things are looking pretty bad for the good guys when Valkyrie and her liberators pull up on their flying chariot to save the day. Hooray! As they land, Valkyrie calls the wasp Wench, which seems a little out of character, but nobody seems to pay it any mind. Within seconds, the wasp blinds the melter. Black Widow kicks Claw in the back of his head, and Medusa entangles the whirlwind in her magic hair. Radioactive Man gets ready to shoot his cement gun that he has for some reason at the Scarlet Witch. Clint tells the Scarlet Witch to get out of there, because if he couldn't defeat Radioactive Man with the power of being very large, then what chance could Wanda possibly have with her... Let me check my notes here. Mystical nonsense powers that can do anything up to and including destroy and remake the entire goddamn universe multiple times. Damn it, Clint! Scarlet Witch shoots a hex bolt at Radioactive Man and knocks him out. Damn right she does. Goliath, Quicksilver, Black Panther, and the Vision thank the Liberators for rescuing them, but they do it in a super shitty and condescending manner. Big mistake, guys. Medusa picks up Quicksilver with her hair and smacks the supercilious speedster into a brick wall. Ouch. Black Widow and the Wasp team up to KO the Black Panther. Then Valkyrie steps out of an alleyway, yells, up against the wall, male chauvinist pigs, and smacks the shit out of Goliath and the Vision. Hooray! Acting on Valkyrie's orders, the Liberators round up the unconscious Avengers and take them and Dr. Irwin as their prisoners. Together, they fly down to Irwin's lab in Miskatonic, Massachusetts. When they arrive, the captive celebrity mathematician shows them his new invention, a parallel time projector. It, um... Projects parallel time? Look, it's a little unclear what it does, but the important thing is, it is very powerful. Probably. It's never been tested. The Wasp is like, Um, this whole thing is starting to feel a little bit weird. What's going on here? Fair question. Valkyrie is like, Oh, you poor, poor, stupid fucking idiots. You can stop calling me Valkyrie because I'm actually Amora the Enchantress. The Enchantress is a badass Asgardian who is tangled with the Avengers before. She's also a very snappy dresser. After the big reveal, the Enchantress laughs her ass off. Then she treats her prisoners to a bit of unnecessary exposition. After a recent run-in with the Hulk, Odin exiled Amora and her buddy the Executioner from Asgard, stuck them in some crappy backwater dimension, and took away half their power. While they were in that shitty realm, the Executioner ditched Amora for another villain and left her stranded. Based on the Executioner's betrayal, and the fact that she was born into a universe where the bulk of the dialogue had been written by Stan Lee, Amora reached the reasonable conclusion that all men were sexist assholes. Swearing revenge on men, the Enchantress made her way to Midgar, asterisk Earth, where she learned of the existence of Dr. Irwin's nonsense invention, which she's pretty sure she can use to both get back to Asgard and restore her powers. So she used her remaining powers to create the Valkyrie persona, concocted a plausibly ridiculous backstory, and duped the Wasp, Scarlet Witch, Black Widow, and Medusa into helping her. 
Seems like it would have been easier to just go to Erwin's lab directly and take the device without bothering with the whole Valkyrie disguise. But I guess if she did that, she wouldn't have gotten to smack Goliath and yell at him, so I have no problem with her course of action. Once she's done expositing at her prisoners, Amora turns the machine on. While she's waiting for it to warm up or whatever, she figures she may as well kill all the Avengers, so she goes to magic them to death. But at the last minute, Scarlet Witch steps in and zaps the Enchantress with a hex bolt. The machine explodes, and Amora disappears, apparently atomized by the blast. Wanda reveals that when Valkyrie called Janet Wench, she was pretty sure that something weird was up with her, so she was on guard against the Asgardian antagonist and prepared for her eventual betrayal. That's why she had that hex bolt locked and loaded. Goliath is like, Well, I hope you girls have learned your lesson about how silly feminism is. Man, fuck you, Clint. Scarlet Witch and the Wasp are like, Fuck you, Clint. I mean, I'm paraphrasing slightly, but still. Hooray! Alright, so, Avengers number 83. Just in the broadest possible terms, Sarah, what do you think of this comic book? I love this comic book so much. I have read this comic book so many times. If I could write about it again, if I could figure out something in it, like I think I've written about it maybe like four times or something. <laughs> I'm just like, anytime I can think of an excuse to start talking about this comic, I'll take it. Because I think we'll talk about Roy Thomas's writing a little bit later. But he's one of those guys where it's like very often he's portraying a message that is pretty sexist. Like I would say that his ideas behind this comic are pretty sexist. Mm -hmm. And then you read the comic though and you're just like, but Valkyrie is so good through this entire comic. And Enchantress is so good. And the Wasp is really good. Like all of these characters are great. And they're calling out stuff that's real. You know, it's like even in the first few pages, the, what is it? The Wasp walks into her own house and Valkyrie's like taken over the Avengers mansion, which is yep. amazing. Yeah, with maybe the best titular line in any comic book that I've ever read. Yes, you say it. What was it? I know what it is. I know exactly what you're going to say, but I'm very excited to hear it. <laughs> Greetings, Wasp. Come on in. The revolution's fine. <laughs> it's so good. She's taken over the entire mansion, essentially, while the boy Avengers are gone, you know? Not to be reductive, but this story is highly reductive. But all the men are gone. And so Valkyrie just walks in and takes over Avengers Mansion and is like, you know what? Feminism. And the other Avengers are like, really? Feminism? Okay. I think I can get into that. And so you have, <laughs> you know, Wanda, Janet, and then who else is there? Black Widow. That's right. <laughs> who makes sense because she had been hanging around with the Avengers for quite some time when she was half dating Hawkeye. And yes. she kept wanting to join the team, and they wouldn't let her. <laughs> that's right. So that is, I mean, that's the thing. She makes some valid points, right? Immediately, Valkyrie's like, you know what? These guys are kind of uh, jerks. And everybody's like, you know what? They kind of are jerks. <laughs> well, and I mean, even the roster kind of makes the point, too. The fact that it's <laughs> the three of them and Medusa, because they had to find a fourth woman in the Marvel Universe. <laughs> They're like, um, is Medusa busy right now? Let's, because I mean, that seems like kind of a 
bad setup too, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, Let's bring her in. And Medusa's like, you know what? I am kind of mad about this. It's like, not mad enough. Medusa should be way more mad than she is. But for the purpose of this story, she is mad enough. <laughs> right. You know, when she has a little bit of extra mystical nudging. <laughs> what did you think of this comic? Oh, I had very similar thoughts to yours on it. I... <laughs> loved it in a way that I'm pretty sure I was not supposed to love it. Yes, that's what it feels like, right? Like, you're just like, I love this, but I don't think I'm taking the message that I'm supposed to take from it. Yeah, the feeling that I kept getting from it was the same one I get from those, like, conservative memes that are like, this is the future liberals want, <laughs> where almost all of them, I'm like, actually, yeah, <laughs> that looks rad as fuck. <laughs> yeah, I do want to, like, hang out on a beach smoking weed all day. Totally. <laughs> like, that sounds pretty great. No reason that we shouldn't do that, actually. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, Valkyrie might have made that point, too, and that would have been a, a very different issue, but right, still probably a good issue. I still think I would have enjoyed that. There's so much going on in this issue, too. It's like, so there's much. a bunch of different firsts, not just the first kind of sort of appearance of Valkyrie or somebody who's part Valkyrie, but we also get the first appearance of Rutland, Vermont, which looms super large in comic book lore. Because, yeah, that was like the place where there was the first unofficial DC Marvel crossover. I didn't even catch that. Oh, yeah. It doesn't happen in this issue. But the Halloween parade in Rutland was this real event that happened every year on Halloween. But, yeah, it started in like 1959. And after the first year, the guy running it was just like, hey, we could get way more play out of this if we make it a themed thing and center it around superheroes. And he was big in fan culture, and so it became kind of like the genesis for early cosplay and stuff like that. Oh, wow. And so you see it featured in The Avengers. This is the first issue it shows up in, but it shows up in a lot of both Marvel and DC comics. And later on, there was an arc that started in Amazing Adventure, I think number 14 or 15, but when Steve Englehart was writing that, and mm. then continued in Justice League that Jerry Conway was writing, and then continued back in Mighty Thor, which Len Wein was writing. Oh, wow. So it was like totally off the books, but they were all friends with the guy Tom Fagan, who's in this, who's a real guy, who always dressed as Batman as the parade's like leader or whatever. Um, <laughs> and that's why in this issue, he's dressed as Nighthawk, because he's the Marvel equivalent of Batman. Oh, wow. I had no idea. I had no clue about any of that. That's amazing. Yeah, it's like, so there's no crossover with the characters in like that unofficial arc, with the exception of the characters of Steve Englehart, Jerry Conway, Len Wein, and Glynis Oliver, who are like their car gets trapped there. And those four characters continue <laughs> throughout the arc. It's really interesting. You should totally check it out if you get a chance to. I have to. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. But this, like, the town of Rutland shows up in the Defenders later. It kind of becomes like a touchstone for the Marvel Universe, more so than the DC Universe, but it shows up in DC too. Wow. <laughs> My mind is blown. <laughs> I had no idea. And I thought that there was no way I was going to learn something new about this comic on this <laughs> podcast because I've read it, as I said, probably like two dozen times in my life. But that just goes to show you. <laughs> oh. So 
creators tend to introduce themselves into comics in Rutland, and that continues <laughs> here because we see Roy Thomas and also Gene Thomas, who I think gets undercredited as the writer of Night Nurse, which is another series that I really enjoyed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's good. Well, good is so subjective. It's a comic that Again. I like a lot. <laughs> <laughs> it's almost exactly the same as this, or you're like, it's good for me because I take my message out of it, not right. the intended message. But yeah, so let's talk a little bit about Roy Thomas, because he introduces himself in this issue, and he is the author of both this comic and the other one that we're going to take a look at later, uh, Hulk number 142. What are your thoughts on Roy Thomas? It's a very big question, and I'm sorry to just dump that on you. It is, and I always, I mean, I try as hard as I can to be fair-minded, because I'm always just like, you know, these creators work really hard. Like, Roy Thomas worked really hard, you know? He was the writer of literally everything for mm -hmm. a little while, at least, you know? Um, and he has all of these epic runs that are really have, you know, great dynamic ideas and all of that. And then, of course, like I just said, I, you know, I am obsessed with this issue. But so, so often I read a Roy Thomas comic and I'm just like, you know, you didn't have to be such a jerk about it. <laughs> like, yeah. you didn't have to get these like little barbs in, you know, and obviously... As much as I like, I read this comic and I take a very strongly feminist message out of it because, you know, she's <laughs> yelling <laughs> up against the wall, male chauvinist pigs. So I love that. But he was trying to parody feminism, right? So he's trying to be kind of a jerk about it. So I feel conflicted towards him. And I'm, I think it kind of stands up over time. <laughs> like, <laughs> even now, whenever I like read interviews with Roy Thomas, I'm like, yeah, I don't think I'd want to hang out at lunch with you or anything you know it's just kind of like that but lots yeah of great ideas a ton of comics that i've read obviously so can't totally hate but yeah i have pretty similar feelings i like a lot of what he's read and he made some contributions to comics that i really enjoy even divorced from the implications of what he was writing i have difficulty reading a lot of his especially team superhero books just because they are so dense with words and characters generally. Mm -hmm. But in addition to that, part of what I love about Bronze Age comics is that it was the first era where you really see fans of comic books creating comic books. Mm -hmm, true. And there's some really interesting stuff that comes out of that, but I think there's also some dangers that come from that. And I don't know to what extent the impact of having that be the case with Roy Thomas at such an influential time in comics, having him first be editor-in-chief of Marvel Comics as the first like fan to take it over. But I've noticed he tends to really focus on nostalgia for his youth. Oh my god, yeah. He tries to bring back the invader so many times and mm -hmm. it's just it's the seventies, Roy. Like we don't really want to read the invaders anymore. <laughs> yeah. And like, yeah, some of that stuff that I like, but even like the more innovative, honestly, I think his writing for me works best on stuff like Conan, where like the really flowery stuff is kind of juxtaposed with this like sword and sandals barbarian type stuff. I would agree with that. There's a lot of stuff in the Conan books where I'm like blatantly sexist, blatantly racist, but then yep. there's a really strong arc to it as well. So it's, it's a complicated run, I think, where it's good and bad <laughs> a lot. But he, it's like his style of, I know what you mean, because his style of writing fits that better. 
Mm -hmm. With his superhero stuff, like when he first took over the Avengers from Stan Lee, I also have a lot of issues with Stan Lee and with Stan Lee's writing. Mm -hmm. And some of Roy Thomas's stuff like this are very fun. But a lot of it seems like he has kind of taken the pretension and the bombast of Stan Lee and kind of, I don't want to say picked up the ball and run with it because it really does seem more like a matter of like, pick up the ball and stand perfectly still with it <laughs> and maybe start running back a little bit the other way because he really liked it back there better. Right. Yeah. None of these newfangled motion. I'm going <laughs> to right. go backwards a little bit. I feel very much the same with him. I always think about Janet, right? Janet Van Dyne, the Avengers run. You can tell when Janet gets really good. And the writers that come before that, I'm kind of like, mm. <laughs> you, you didn't see what was so great about this character. And I believe through a lot of Lee and Thomas's run on the Avengers, you see, you know, her crying over Hank and, mm -hmm. you know, can't just can't get a hold of my hysterical emotions kind of character and doesn't have any active leadership, really, or anything like that. And then it's later you see Janet just completely come into her own. So I always am like, mm. <laughs> again and again with Roy Thomas, where I'm just like, mm, I don't know. I don't like how you write women usually. Yeah. What writer would you say Janet kind of came more into her own under? Because I kind of also don't really see her develop that much under Engelhart, who I think was kind of next, right? I think it was Engelhart. Whenever she gets divorced and she becomes the leader, and I'm trying to think if that was Engelhart. If it was, I think it was a little bit later in his run. But basically, whenever she becomes the leader is like my favorite time. And I honestly think that she still holds up as like one of the best leaders of the Avengers. If I'm remembering correctly, the writer still doesn't focus on her that much. Like she still tends to be kind of in and out of the series. But the issues that do focus on her are really, really good. Yeah, I'm trying to remember what writer it is specifically. It might be Inglehart because it's after like the divorce, right? Like there's that, who wrote that? Was that Jim Shooter that wrote that? In my mind, it's Jim Shooter because oh I, I kind of just want it to be Jim Shooter. It's like, you know what? Yeah, let's just have that be Jim Shooter that does that. <laughs> And, yeah yeah makes it he he makes a good like wick for my anger to hold on to oh my so. god yeah fair enough i think it might actually be inglehart but it was i believe it's after she gets the divorce she walks in and everybody's like janet's gonna be a mess right like we've gotta go ahead and let her take all the time off the team that she needs and she just kind of muscles her way into leadership of the avengers and that to me was like that's when janet is amazing and then she stays amazing for like a pretty long run and you know after she hands over leadership to monica rambo oh. she's out for a while and then i think has like you know a hard time finding her footing again if you're gonna hand it off to somebody i i love monica rambo so much i love that arc janet being like monica you have to be the leader <laughs> like <laughs> to me was also really good but monica in and of herself is such a good leader I would say Captain America, Monica Rambeau, Janet Van Dyne. Those are my favorite of the Avengers leaders. I think that totally makes sense. Yeah, and Monica Rambeau, she was a character who was, like, great from her inception. I mm -hmm. reread that recently, the Roger Stern yes. Amazing Spider-Man annual that she first showed up in, and she was just, like, fucking rad right from the get-go. It didn't take 100%. time to develop her into the person. That's awesome. <laughs> 
Yeah, no, she rules. Like Monica Rambo, you know, we could do that's like the Monica Rambo podcast that's just being like, <laughs> wow, she's great. <laughs> she doesn't she also doesn't get enough screen time, but at least as you say, from the very beginning, it's a good story with her. Right. And we're getting the slightest bit off topic. A little bit. Here, this happens. This happens. I did want to point out the art in this issue, I think is absolutely gorgeous. I especially really liked the colors in this absolutely popped. Oh, man. There's yeah. not a colorist credited to this issue, but I know that Marie Severin was the head colorist at Marvel at the time, so I feel pretty confident in assuming that it's her because it also just kind of looks like her palette. 100%. Yeah, it's got that kind of uh, conflicting colors blending situation that she was always so great at. So, yeah, I, I would agree. If I was going to guess it was anybody, I would say her for sure. And it works really well with John Buscema, and John Buscema does a really good job, too. I haven't honestly read a ton of his stuff, but I like the way he draws faces, and especially the way he draws civilian faces, and I think it works really well in this issue. It is a beautiful comic. It really is. So... Yeah, in this issue, we talked about how it isn't really Valkyrie, but it's kind of Valkyrie. It's the mm -hmm. Enchantress dressing up as Valkyrie or... In a body. <laughs> she, yeah. She's just trying on this body for a while. <laughs> yeah, and I guess she created the persona of Valkyrie at this point, and then that kind of gets retconned away <laughs> later. Valkyrie's role in the Marvel Universe reminds me some of like Wonder Girl in the DC yes. Universe, where it's just like... Oh, I wasn't really paying attention to what this character was, but can she just exist? And yes. everybody being like, well, okay. Yeah, there's 15 who is Donna Troy <laughs> issues, <laughs> and that should probably be the same for Valkyrie, because you have to go through a lengthy explainer every time she reappears. Right. Yeah, she's the Enchantress, and I love the Enchantress. She is certainly one of those villains where this is kind of when she comes into her own, right? Because I think for a long time, she was Loki's bestie in the Thor books. And mm -hmm. that's really fun and good, but she doesn't get to do very much. And then here she starts to step into the limelight a little bit more and she's taking on the Avengers and she goes on to do, you know, other things. And unfortunately, it's kind of a short lived run. It's Avengers 83, Hulk 142, which we're going to talk about, but, uh, also, Defenders number four, I believe, she mm -hmm. has that whole arc with <laughs> Black Knight where <laughs> she just kind of uses him for her own purposes and, you know, takes over Valkyrie during that time, too. And I love every single one of those issues because I just think she's the best villain. She's so dynamic and so fun to watch. Oh, she is absolutely great. And it, this is one of the few issues, too, where, yeah, she isn't a sidekick and doesn't have a sidekick, at least, like, through the the Bronze Age, it's one of the few examples of that, because normally she's, like you said, either paired with Loki or paired with the Executioner. Mm -hmm. And in this, she's just kind of on her own. And there's a weird and, in my opinion, kind of unnecessary explanation of what the Executioner's up to with Cassiolina, which then gets folded into <laughs> Defenders number four later. But it's like, whoa, this is a lot of exposition for kind of no reason. <laughs> Oh, totally. Yeah. Really, all we need from Enchantress is like that scene at the end where she 
just starts waving her fist and yelling about how much she hates men. <laughs> that is great. And I love too, that it is preceded by her looking so fucking happy that she, she turns is. back into the Enchantress. I love her. She's so good. I love her whole dynamic with Valkyrie too. You know, if Marvel ever was just like, hey, Sarah, what do you want to write? I'd be like, I have to write a Valkyrie Enchantress series and it has to be a long one. Like, it has to be at least 10 issues, but it's going to be good because I am obsessed with those two characters and their totally weird dynamic with each other is amazing. So in your story, would they have to, like, be roommates and shit or, like... (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I wasn't planning on that, but I'm going to have to reconsider. I mean, they're roommates in Valkyrie's body. Right. (laughs) They've already gotten to know each other pretty good. Enchantress shows back up in Defenders number four. Then we are introduced to Barbara Norris, who is a super tragic character who gets misused, I think, worse than Valkyrie does, which is saying something. The way that her husband just stalks her through so much of the Defenders is like, I mean, I love seeing her tell him off, but it just goes on for way too long. Oh, God. And it's just like, ugh. Jack Norris is such a piece of shit. He sucks. I hate him so much. And I had thought that he was a character that Steve Gerber introduced to be a stand-in for him because he always has like a stand-in for Steve Gerber character. I hate it. (laughs) Yeah, I kind of do too. (laughs) But he actually repurposed Jack Norris because Jack Norris actually does show up. They were in the cult together and Barbara wants to quit and he gives her this like super paternalistic like speech like my dad would if I wanted to quit the basketball team in fourth mm-hmm. grade. He's like, now, now, you signed up for this cult, so you're gonna have to murder the Hulk. And she's like, fine, I don't want to, but okay. <laughs> but the idea that then they're supposed to be, oh, we're supposed to feel sorry for Jack Norris. It's just I like, hate him. And that he gets to be an agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. Do they just not do any background checks? Serious. It's like, why don't you ask literally anybody else (laughs) how is he gonna be an agent of shield and keep his cool in situations when he can't even keep his cool for two panels of barbara saying what she wants out of life (laughs) like i just can't stand that character terrible there's it's like some characters you should repurpose and that one you should just leave him terrible yep I feel like if nothing else on the S.H.I.E.L.D. entrance exam, two of the questions should be, one, can you go more than a page without bellowing, where's my wife? (laughs) Unless you're Mystique. (laughs) Okay, that's fine. (laughs) And B, have you ever joined an evil cult and tried to blow up the planet? Like, maybe some (laughs) vetting process would be a good idea. Although, again, I would be willing to make a Mystique exemption there. Exactly. Mystique (laughs) is the one who gets away with that. But Jack Norris does not. Because you know what? The difference is Mystique respects destiny. Mm -hmm. But Jack does not respect Barbara. No, no. And unfortunately, the books really don't respect Barbara either. Because she goes through this whole arc where she, like I said, she was part of the evil cult. She ends up in whatever weirdo dimension where Steve and the Defenders find her. And it turns out that she's hanging out with the nameless one, who I think we named Glenn. It's been a while since we've covered (laughs) these issues. But (laughs) Steve decides to yank her out of there without asking consent first. 
and it snaps her mind and she just starts stringing together long strands of capital a's to indicate her quote madness unquote right yeah and then from there on her mental illness sorcerously induced though it was is treated like the mental illness in like a gothic romance where they're like well just lock her in the attic in this case the (laughs) attic of valkyrie's mind in a little corner (laughs) and she'll be quiet there and then when she finally does get out they decide oh well now she's evil oh my god and then she has to be banished to hell this is what they do to feminists in comics for the longest time. They were just like, let's just go ahead and punish her, but let's like double punish her. Wait, wait, let's triple punish her. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, no, stop. Just because she showed up and was amazing. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's like the, the worst crime in like the 70s and 80s for like a character, you know, is just to be like kind of openly feminist not it's like but that's the thing is like they they completely downplay her feminism the moment she joins the defenders mm-hmm. like it's just kind of like uh, now she's just like a lost child and she needs like Stephen strange to tell her what's up and all of the forced kisses i'm sure that oh, you have God. covered those in defenders yep. <laughs> background where it's just all of these male characters repeatedly grabbing her and kissing her and being like yeah, what about that? In her being like, I don't know, seems great. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, what is happening in these comics? It's like, what message are you sending about feminists? You know, uh, it's, it's so bad. But, you know. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it's really frustrating because they decide to put her in the position of like a stranger in a strange land or a fish out of water, mm-hmm. which is fine. And there are good ways to tell that story. I mean, like you could say like, Hercules or Thor are like fish out of water, stranger in a strange land type characters. I would love it if she would interact with the world the way that they did, where they're like, oh, this is weird and doesn't make any sense. Fuck this. But instead they have her be like, this is weird and doesn't make any sense. But if you men say so, okay, (laughs) I guess. I don't know who I am. Yeah, and now I started to figure it out, and therefore I am banished to hell. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I, like, left my husband. Goodbye, everyone. I'm in hell now. (laughs) Like, just (laughs) goodbye forever. I'm going to go hang out with this Norse god of biathlons who dresses like a street shark. It is so messed up. Yeah, they do our girl wrong. I'm going to say that. Like, it's hard. As you say, it's super hard to be hey, read this Valkyrie comic. (laughs) (laughs) But I understand things get better with the new Defenders for her, and I'm looking forward to, like, Demetrius coming over as the run, but right now I'm not sure exactly what order we're going to release this episode in, but uh, I think we're in the throes of the Mandrill story arc. (laughs) And, uh, yeah, so like I said, I got high hopes for Demetrius and Peter Gillis. It gets a lot better. One of the more frustrating things about the way we've seen Valkyrie is portrayed is that it's built into her character, I think just as of Defenders number four, that she can never do anything to harm another woman. And oh my god, right. That's interesting. And like if you're trying to bake in like the concept of like solidarity into her character, it would be nice if she had another woman to interact with occasionally until like 50 issues into the arc. I swear to God. Yeah, she is completely isolated on that team. It's kind of to the point of being 
hey, other defenders, you guys were pretty weird to her. (laughs) Yeah. Kept her isolated and told her a bunch of paternalistic stuff. And yeah, it gets to a point where you're kind of not only like side-eyeing Jack a little bit, but you're also like side-eyeing all of the other defenders a little bit and being like, you guys should have had a rule where he couldn't come into the house anymore. Um, Uh (laughs) Like you should have been protecting your friend, but all right. Yeah. Instead, you were just like, well, he makes Steve and Kyle look good in comparison. (laughs) So uh, we're going to be annoyed by him. But uh, okay, Jack, come on. Yeah. And they'd be like, well, he is your husband. (laughs) Oh, God. Oh, my God, you guys. (laughs) First of all, no, he isn't. (laughs) No, he isn't. And second of all, even if he was. But yeah. I know. (laughs) Yeah. It's it's rough later, later down the road for our poor Valkyrie, especially the Barbara Norris <laughs> incarnation. <laughs> but I think the other thing that, yeah, struck me about this issue is the way it just kind of ended. <laughs> yeah. That ending is wild. There's this buildup to this whole, like, okay, I guess there's a scientist who works at Miskatonic University, which is, you know, nice, <laughs> nice nod to the Cthulhu verse. Yeah. And I guess he's the Grand Marshal of the parade. (laughs) And he carries his new uh, experimental invention with him in the car as he waves to everybody. Oh my god. And Enchantress wants to steal that for reasons. (laughs) For whatever reason, honestly. (laughs) Right. And then it explodes, issues over, and all of the points that she raised about, hey, you guys are getting treated like shit by your male counterparts are just like, well, that's still the case. Okay, did you <laughs> did you ladies learn your lesson about feminism? <laughs> yeah, Clinton Barton, who shows up in his, like, leather daddy harness <laughs> and <laughs> it's like a belly shirt, <laughs> is just, women's lib is a load of bull. And then I think it's uh, both Janet and Wanda are like, you know, I think that maybe she had some pretty good points <laughs> that's yeah. like the end of the issue and it's like in clint's defense it might have been in his contract with hank pym that when he takes over hank's outfit he has to say that at least once an episode oh my god i know <laughs> i was just like clint settle down bud <laughs> like <laughs> giant man whatever you're doing right now Just his, like, hilarious outfit while he's, like, (laughs) yelling about feminism is just like, yeah, well, this is pre-internet, but you would have fit in just fine on the internet. Totally. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it came up on a recent show, but it is such perfect casting, too, that uh, Michael Douglas plays Hank Pym in, in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Oh, my God, yeah. I can't remember where I heard the phrase, but it always stuck with me that like, that would be like making a misogynistic movie without Michael Douglas. It's unthinkable. (laughs) And I feel like, yeah, Hank is the comic book equivalent of that. And when Clint takes over his outfit, he takes on that mindset. Although he had always pretty much had a big chunk of that going on. Oh, totally. Yeah. I think that they're both so mad at their ex-girlfriends, right? Like, <laughs> they're both mad that their ex-girlfriends are so cool, you know? Yeah. Um, and it really bothers them. And then you end up with these rants. <laughs> like, Hank Pym has... Because later they try to make him be, like, kind of pathetic, right? Like, feel bad for him. Mm-hmm. Like, Janet, you, like, left him whenever he was high and dry and, like, all of this. And I think that there's something to be said for the fact that 
whenever she like tricks him into marrying her <laughs> and stuff like he was definitely going through mental health stuff and she really did ignore it so i think that there is something to be said for hank pym but it kind of gets worse later whenever they're like but he's like a nice guy and it's yeah. like oh yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> well uh i could talk to you about this comic book all day but we do Forever. have another whole comic book to talk about we do yeah so let's talk about the hulk number 142 yay the incredible hulk number 142 august 1971 they shoot hulks don't they written by roy thomas drawn by herb trimpey Inked by John Severin, lettered by Artie Simak, edited by Stan Lee, and inspired by an article by Tom Wolfe. Defensive lineup The Hulk, Valkyrie, again, sort of, but more than last time. The Black Panther. Oops, nope, my bad. There's a Black Panther in this comic, but not the Black Panther. Sorry. The Hulk has had a long day, so he decides to climb the Statue of Liberty and take a snooze curled up in her arms. Aww. By the next morning, the bounding behemoth's choice of snooze venues has made headline news. The authorities, local residents, and tourists all seem thoroughly flummoxed by this development. But where most see chaos, one enterprising pair of socialites sees an exciting opportunity. Reginald and Militia Parrington had been searching for a controversial charity for which they could hold a fundraising event. Several of their high-society social rivals had already held functions for various social justice organizations that the mainstream media had labeled to be extremists, so Reginald figures that if he wants to make waves, he's going to have to find a cause to champion that is truly unique. The Parrington's daughter, Samantha, suggests that if they want to do some good, they could hold a party for the women's rights group that she's recently joined. But her parents quickly reject this idea, because too many people have already embraced feminism. I mean, judging from the rest of this book, not too many people in the comic book industry have embraced feminism, but whatever. No, Reginald has decided that he wants to hold a fundraiser for the Hulk. Okay, I mean... The guy definitely seems like he could use a new pair of pants. Thus motivated, the Parringtons head out to Liberty Island to see if they can convince the Hulk to come to their party. The Parringtons aren't the only people trying to convince the Hulk to leave his monumental roost either. General Thunderbolt Ross does a flyby in a helicopter and tries yelling at the Hulk to climb down from there, presumably so that the army can go back to trying to kill him without risking further damage to Lady Liberty. But for some reason, the Hulk doesn't seem to trust the guy who's been chasing him around the country, shooting at him, and making his life a living hell for the past several years. Go figure. As the Parringtons approach the island, an army guy tells them to go away. Militia tries pulling the, Do you know who I am? card, but for once it doesn't work. So Samantha punches the army guy over the railing and sends him tumbling into the bay. Okay, I'm not generally a fan of entitled rich people disobeying rules that other people are expected to abide by, but... Hooray! That was fucking badass! The trio of wealthy scofflaws climb up to the torch where the jade giant has been camping out and have a little chat with him. Reginald tries to convince the Hulk that he needs their help, but the green goliath isn't hearing it. Then Samantha intervenes. She tells the Hulk that if he wants the government to stop hassling him, 
then he needs to own his own country, and that with her parents' wealth and the resources that they have access to, that might actually be an achievable goal. The Hulk doesn't totally understand what Samantha's getting at, but her tone seems earnest and straightforward, so he decides to return with the Parringtons to their palatial high-rise apartment. During the journey through the city, the curious quartet garners a great deal of attention, which was precisely what Reginald was hoping for. The self-satisfied social climber seems very much in his element when dealing with the press, who he informs that he will be hosting a party on the Hulk's behalf that very evening. Unfortunately, during the interview, the socially savvy spendthrift pointedly neglects to mention his daughter's crucial role in convincing the Hulk to go along with this planned party. Samantha is understandably irked at her patrician parents for this snub, and vows to do everything in her power to ruin the scheduled soiree. While the Hulk and the elder Parringtons head up to the apartment to get ready for the evening's festivities, Sam stalks off, intent to mobilize her women's liberation group against her father and his latest cause celebra. That night, Reginald and Militia's party gets off to a great start. It is attended by a veritable who's who of the 1970s New York intelligentsia. I assume. For me, it's more of a who's that of 1970s New York intelligentsia, because there are a lot of characters who are clearly supposed to be representations of specific individuals that I was unfamiliar with. The exception to this is neo-journalist Tom Wolfe, whose article in New York Magazine is credited as inspiring this comic. He is clearly labeled, and shown talking to a man that the internet informs me is supposed to represent Field Marshal DC of the Black Panther Party. Hulk isn't having a great time at the party. The other guests don't seem to notice that. Two film producers offer him a role in movies, and other partygoers pester him with self-important questions. The Hulk threatens to smash them, but they continue to behave as though their actions will never have any consequences for them, because, well, they're rich, and their actions have never had any consequences for them. From the Parrington's point of view, everything is going swimmingly. Then, Militia notices a growing crowd outside. It's Samantha and her women's liberation group protesting the party. They voice the opinion that the time and resources being devoted to the Hulk should instead be spent combating patriarchal oppression of women. Which is kind of a fair point. But really, Samantha's just pissed because her parents are jerks who dismissed her contribution to setting up the party in the first place. From a multicolored cloud in a weirdo dimension where I guess she's been hanging out since the end of The Avengers number 83, Amora the Enchantress watches events unfold. Hooray! Amora takes note of Samantha's anger and figures that she can use that to her advantage. Turns out that in addition to wanting revenge on the Avengers, the Enchantress also wants revenge on the Hulk for something that went down a while ago. Odin's spell that cut her powers in half is still in effect, but the KG Conjurer is pretty sure that she found a loophole. Summoning all of her remaining energy, she casts a spell on Samantha Parrington. Samantha is overcome by a strange sensation. She wanders away from the protest, and in a trance-like state, she makes her way to the base of the Empire State Building, where she feels the sudden urge to throw back her head and bellow the word, Valhalla! to the heavens. When she speaks this word, Samantha is instantly struck by a bolt of pure mystical energy, which transforms her Shazam-style into the awesome Asgardian Amazon we have come to know as Valkyrie. Hooray! Valkyrie looks pissed. Back at the party, everything seems to be proceeding as Reginald had planned. After everybody hobnobs and brags about how rich they are, 
Reggie asks them to get out their checkbooks. All of the guests try to outdo each other in terms of donation amounts, and within a few minutes, the Parringtons proudly hand the Hulk a pile of cash and checks in an amount that totals over $100,000. Wow. And that's $1971. So today that would probably be worth, I don't know, like $974 billion. Pretty good. The Hulk is unimpressed. He's like, these pieces of paper have no intrinsic worth, but rather are imbued with false value which has been arbitrarily imposed upon them by a capricious society. Well, that's pretty much the gist of what he says anyway. Before the Hulk figures out a way to smash the very concept of capitalism, Valkyrie Kool-Aid mans her way through the window and shouts her catchphrase, Up against the wall, male chauvinist pig! Hooray! Val starts beating the crap out of the Hulk, who, out of some misplaced sense of chivalry, refuses to fight back. While the Hulk prevaricates, Valkyrie punches him through a wall and onto the street. Hooray! Once they're outside, Hulk is like, Well, if you're gonna hit me, then I'm just gonna leave. Which is surprisingly mature of the big green galoot. Valkyrie appears to have a change of heart, and is like, Hey, don't go away mad. How about a hug? When a confused Hulk moves in closer, Val gives him a Vulcan nerve pinch and knocks him out. As the Enchantress watches on with delight from her weird cloud thing, Valkyrie drags an unconscious Hulk back to the Empire State Building, carries him up to the top, and then hurls him to the ground. Harsh. As she watches her emerald adversary tumble to the ground, some part of Samantha inside of Val starts to feel bad about her actions. She jumps off the building to check on her defeated foe. The sorcerously Scandinavian socialite is both startled and relieved to learn that the Hulk is just fine. He dusts himself off, and the two powerhouses prepare to pummel one another yet again. Just when they are about to settle once and for all who is the mightiest, the Enchantress's spell wears off. For some reason, this not only causes Valkyrie to revert back into Samantha Parrington, but also the Hulk turns back to sad sack civilian Bruce Banner. Neither of them has any recollection of the events that transpired that evening. Samantha turns to Bruce and is like, It's weird that we're both standing here in a pile of rubble with tattered clothing and no memories of what just happened, right? Bruce Banner looks back at her and is like, Eh, novelty wears off after a while. So, what did you think about the Hulk 142? <laughs> I have a lot less tolerance for this one, but I think it was still pretty fun to read. He's obviously really going for some commentary here, you know? Uh -huh. <laughs> it's like even from page one all the way to the end, he's basically kind of just slamming activism, right? Yep. Specifically activism by rich people. So it's there's even the shout out to Tom Wolfe's essay. Mm -hmm. uh, what is it? Radical. Radical chic. And then yes. yeah, uh, Mao Maoing of the something was the book that it got turned into. Oh my God. Um, it's such a pretentious title just in and of itself. So it's like, oh, who yeah. are you calling out about this? But <laughs> because maybe call yourself out a little bit. But the uh, the general feeling of the essay is he had gone to a party and saw rich people who were listening essentially to like Black Panthers talk mm -hmm. about their issues, like a lot of the problems that they were having and they were trying to all like raise funds, right? Mm -hmm. Which like 
cool. And then he, he writes this essay about how they're diametrically opposed with their ideology and how fake all these rich people are, which is, you know, true. But it's also like, what are they going to do, bud? Like, do you not want them to give their money <laughs> to, like, the Black Panthers? Like, uh, no, he their clearly money doesn't. Go there. <laughs> it's just kind of a really intense essay where you're like, I get you have kind of a point, but it's so, so cynical that it's like doesn't hold up very well, I think. It is an as he is kind of, I think, calling out as a party hosted by Leonard Bernstein, and as he is calling him out for, I think, being patronizing in part towards the black movement, he is being so patronizing, patronizing, and, and saying dismissive that, oh, and just shitty, and being like, oh, there's like other black people on the face of the planet. It's not just the Black Panthers and like all of this, and the Black Panthers are actually really harmful to them, and like all of this stuff where you're just like, this is bad yeah (laughs) you shouldn't say any of this yeah and of course it was like a famous essay that like it's that you know intellectual leftist you know elite kind of thing that people really hung on to and still hang on to right yeah so it's like a super harmful essay in a lot of ways because it's like you know you can't be somebody who just cares about other people (laughs) like you can't listen you can't try to be better you know it's basically it was just like no this is just elitism and you know they just didn't take it very seriously and on top of that we're being really critical of the black panthers in a way that i don't think was necessary (laughs) so i just think that it was you know kind of a wildly inappropriate essay and then of course where does it pop up a roy thomas comic (laughs) yep and repurposing it so that the hulk is the stand-in for the black panthers oh my god hulk not understand and you're just like oh my god (laughs) this is very offensive on so many levels and is the type of thing that as i said i love bronze age comics from this era Mm -hmm. and i love them as cultural artifacts of just like here was what was going on one of the things that i find really frustrating about comics from this era is there had just been kind of a relaxation of the kind of self invoked censorship the comics code that had been going on for the past i think 20 years or almost at that point in comics and there was now suddenly a slight push to introduce the idea of socially relevant topics into comics but the way that they did it almost uniformly i think honestly more so at marvel which is weird because they have a reputation for being i think more progressive than dc Mm -hmm. uh was this almost proto-South Park politics. Oh, yeah. Both sides are crazy on this issue. They're way out of line. And this, like, it would have a liberal sheen, but it would pretty much be straight centrist politics that Mm -hmm. would introduce the idea of, yeah, social injustice, be it racism or sexism, that's wrong. But you know what's as bad, if not worse? Being upset about those things. (laughs) Yeah. It's something that you saw Stan Lee do a bunch. And Mm -hmm. it's something that you see Roy Thomas, again, just kind of pick up the ball from Stan Lee and do kind of the same thing in a way that's really frustrating. And there are some like responses that Roy Thomas has had in letter columns that I've just been so frustrated by. Mm -hmm. There's one where I don't remember most of the exchange because I got to Roy Thomas using the phrase non-ironically noted 
Oh, shit. Can't remember the guy's name. Who was the guy who debated Gore Vidal on television? Norman Mellor, isn't it? No, the other... George Will, maybe? Hi, this is Hub from the future doing editing. The name I was looking for was William F. Buckley. But he 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 used the phrase non-ironically like, no, in fact, that character was supposed to represent non-bigot George Will. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, the guy who called Gore Vidal the uh, the F word, the, the bad right. one on right, national right. television, that noted non-bigot. I just remembered uh, Norman Mailer is a joke in this, right? Because Samantha, who's the feminist, is just you know, the unreasonable feminist or whatever, rich girl, et cetera, et cetera, all of the bad tropes. And mm -hmm. she brings up, oh, well, I bet Hook is even more misogynistic than Norman Mailer. <laughs> and it's like, well, that guy stabbed his wife. So I don't know. Let's find out, you know. But back then it was like, yeah, you must be a bonkers feminist to have an issue with this guy who stabbed his wife. <laughs> like, it's yeah. just, wow, you feminist, when will you stop? <laughs> like, uh. I gotta say, that being said, I love Samantha Parrington. She's so good. So, the, I mean, the thing that just pops out to me every single time I think of this, of course, you know, we have all of the great male chauvinist <laughs> lines from Valkyrie. But Samantha, before she becomes Valkyrie, when she's up on the Statue of Liberty and she's like, Valhalla! <laughs> <laughs> I love that panel so much. I think that that's on par with Avengers number 83's up against the wall male chauvinist pigs. <laughs> that's pretty great. I love when she throws a cop in the river. <laughs> yes. That's something it's just like if I if I could tattoo that whole sequence on my body, maybe I would, you know, like <laughs> It's so good. Yeah, she's fun. And she also calls her parents out. Like, her parents do kind of suck because mm -hmm. they're supposed to be the liberal elite, you know? Like, they're totally the point that Roy Thomas is making is, is that they don't really care about the Hulk. <laughs> Which is Black Panthers, I guess. Yeah, it was a stand-in for, like, uh, social issues in their entirety, I guess. Mm -hmm. <laughs> So, yeah, I think that, you know, she is a really interesting character. I would like to, I mean, did she ever come back after this? Because I feel like this is like one of the only times I've ever seen her. I read references on the internet to her coming back at some point, and mm -hmm. I'm sure listeners will let me know about it because I <laughs> want her to come back a lot. She's the only one who seems to have kind of a symbiotic relationship with Valkyrie. Right. Like, yeah. Enchantress was just kind of using Valkyrie as a disguise, and Barbara Norris, the Valkyrie is almost a parasite, which is using Barbara Norris as a host. But I love the dynamic between Samantha and Valkyrie, and it seemed like it was going in an interesting direction, and I want to see more of this, like, feisty young feminist character, even though she is so <laughs> heavily undercut by Roy Thomas trying to say... She's only interested in this as long as she gets credit for it. And as soon as her parents are interested in the Hulk, then she wants to carry a sign that says the Hulk is sexist, which also then he does go ahead and make the Hulk be very sexist. Yeah, that's the thing. He's always proving his own point in these comments. Yeah. <laughs> You're just like, yeah, I mean, he is super sexist, especially since Valkyrie is a Valkyrie and Hulk mm -hmm. won't fight her they are made to fight like that's the point of valkyries uh yeah i just it was baffling kind of 
And also, what is Hulk's deal in this? The whole time he's just, I don't know. (laughs) I don't like this that much. This girl was nice. Now she's mean. It was confusing for a few reasons. Like, it seemed like they were building Samantha up to be a different kind of character because the Hulk was like, I can tell that you're a very good person who has my true interests at heart, unlike your parents. And so that's why he decides to go with them. But then as soon as her parents are like, yes, we did a good job convincing the Hulk to go with us. She's just like, well, then fuck this whole thing. Uh, I'm going to go tear it all down. Valhalla. (laughs) Exactly. But also it's weird because the Hulk is speaking so differently than I'm used to hearing the Hulk speak. Yeah. Like he's using way more pronouns. And I don't know if that's just the era of this book. If the Hulk, maybe his speech patterns were less set at that point, but he sounds way more like this almost philosophical character. And I don't know if that's just the way Roy Thomas writes or if that's the way Hulk was written. I know it was kind of based on Frankenstein's monster in Mm -hmm. some ways. And he has that kind of pathos in this, it feels like. I don't know, having an existential crisis. (laughs) He really is. He falls asleep on the Statue of Liberty, which I feel like you have to be having a bit of an existential crisis to do. It is adorable. It is actually really cute. And that sequence, too... I like Herb Trimpey's art a lot in general. Mm -hmm. This era, it's a little bit inconsistent. And there are some panels, especially later on in the book, that look a little bit more rushed and a little bit more sketchy. But some of the detail that he does, especially of the Hulk's face in this, are just gorgeous. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was it, right? The art on both of these was so, so good. So, I mean, it really does carry a lot of the like downsides of the plot right on through because it's gorgeous to read. Both of them were. Yeah, it is. And it's also, I mean, it is certainly interesting as a just like like a cultural artifact of a, oh, this is the most 1970 thing ever. Not even 1970s. It's so specific because this issue came out like within a few months of the article that it is based on appearing in the New Yorker. And Uh, I'm I'm used to there being much longer a gestation period for comic books to comment on things. Oh my God. Yeah, it's totally just... I think that we have seen such an extreme of this stuff now where it's so many, you know, New York Times articles are doing the same exact thing like Mm -hmm. all of the time and minimizing, you know, all of these problems. (laughs) All of the problems that Tom Wolfe you know, got mad at people for giving a darn about, but, um, yeah, no, it's, it's a wild comic. I feel like I, the first time I read it, maybe I hadn't read that Tom Wolfe essay and I was just like, cool, Valkyrie. Yeah. (laughs) I like, you know, every time Valkyrie shows up, I'm like, this is going to be hard to read probably, (laughs) but I'll like some of it. (laughs) And I love the cover. (laughs) Yeah. The cover is really good. (laughs) But yeah, this was like, it's kind of the trilogy of her appearances, right? Like if we do, you know, that one, this one, and then Defenders, number four, Mm -hmm. then it's kind of the time when Valkyrie was making really salient points and being kind of an interesting character. And then after this drop off entirely, you know, a lot of the stuff that you've talked about on the show uh, which is just, you know, Barbara Norris, all of the, all of the bad stuff. So I think that this is kind of like the middle issue of those three. And they're all kind of 
what does Roy Thomas think about <laughs> feminists? <laughs> and it's like, that part of it's not great. But the Valkyrie part, up against the wall, male show pigs. <laughs> what a great catchphrase, which, I mean, it really is setting it up like that is going to be her catchphrase. Why? I think it's the only dialogue that carries through from one issue to the next. I'm so angry that, like, that doesn't come back later. <laughs> that should be her catchphrase, that absolutely. That still be her catchphrase. <laughs> Just her battle never... cry every time. Oh, my God. It never should have gone away. Like, all of this time, we needed her to be yelling that. Like, we needed it desperately, and it wasn't there. And it really bums me out, so. Yeah. I mean, it's not a good comic book but right. it is still a comic book that i kind of love or at the very least find absolutely fascinating yeah there's all this extra context yeah have you ever read lady cop i don't think so what is that it's first issue special number four from dc which was a series they had where it's it's kind of hard to find just because of the naming convention it was a series <laughs> called first issue special oh, um, God. And it would be the series where they would try to introduce a new character. Uh, but in the fourth issue, I think it's mid-70s at that point, but they try to introduce a character named Lady Cop. That is the funniest name I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> Who is a lady, but get this, also a cop. Lady Doctor, Lady Cop, what's next? <laughs> Let me just hop in my spaceship and fly back to Mars. Um, but uh, it, it is... Also a very bad comic book, but a very fascinating of a mid-70s comic book in which Robert Koeniger, or Koeniger, however oh it is God. pronounced, tries That's... to write an overtly feminist comic book to cash in on this craze of women having rights. That guy. And he's, I was honestly, before we even got into this conversation, I was like, Koeniger is literally the dc version of roy thomas and all of the stuff that he did and i would feel the same exact way because he introduced you know nubia who's incredible mm -hmm. um poison ivy one of my very favorite characters ever and then it is so sexist yeah <laughs> but it's but i love them so much you know and it's just like the, i it has such a uh, a mirror in valkyrie right for the other publisher basically oh absolutely they're, they have almost the same exact politics and a lot of, um, yeah, rampant sexism because he, yeah. he was on Wonder Woman forever. Yeah, uh, he was the guy who took it over after Marston Moulton died or Moulton Marston and then was on it until they launched the new Wonder Woman, which certainly had its own problems. Yes. But what's super frustrating to me is that then he took wonder woman back over i mean there's a ton that's super frustrating about him being on the title to begin with yes but when he took it back over after it's a two-issue arc that we had that was by samuel delaney that culminated in the women's lib issue which was supposed to be the first issue of a six-issue arc that sounds absolutely fascinating it was a story that was supposed to end with wonder woman fighting protesters outside an abortion clinic mm -hmm. and the way that dc ended up playing like gloria steinem had just published ms magazine and 
I think they wanted out of the Samuel Delaney story arc, so they were just like, oh, Gloria Steinem says that uh, we can't do this arc because Wonder Woman needs her powers back, so let's give the title to Robert Knacker. No, it was so bad. And then how, oh gosh, like when you read or when you listen to interviews of them being just such babies about it, where they're like, like Gloria Steinem's all like, yeah, no, they called me and were like, are you happy now? (laughs) Basically, and she's like, I guess. Um, but then, but then, of course, you know, there was the fact that he took the editing job from Dorothy Woolfolk, who yep. was like the feminist editor who literally got chased out of comics by this guy, you know. And then so, had no, her, he... a character who was a stand-in for her get shot by a sniper in the first issue that he takes back on it. Yeah, and they like definitely drag her for being a feminist even in it, and it's so gross. It's yeah. so gross. And I would say... That nothing quite that extreme happens right. in these issues, but it is certainly something where you're just like, I mean, if somebody had even for, if a woman for a second had come into a position of power that was equal to Roy Thomas's, don't you think, you know, it's like, oh. we can't, we can't speculate too much, obviously, because that's slander, but, right. <laughs> but I'm also just like, I don't know, those two guys did have a lot in common and they, they bummed me out pretty yeah. equally. There, I, I mean, Robert Kniger also, though, I mean, ah, <laughs> his legacy is so complicated because, like you said, he did introduce those great characters. And he was also, basically until Jack Kirby showed up, the only writer who was introducing any Black characters at DC, yep. too. And so it, it it sucks all the bad that he did, but I also don't want to completely discount some of the good things he accomplished. I was reminded recently, too, that, God, can't remember the name, the guy who did Seduction of the Innocent. Oh, uh, Frederick Wortham. Frederick Wortham, too, was also, like, hugely vocal in desegregating schools. Yep. And so it's... Complicated legacies. But we still get to totally hate the bad parts of what they did. Oh, yeah. And I mean, I'm a Valkyrie fan, and I'm a Wonder Woman fan, and I'm a Poison Ivy fan. And I just see how all of these characters, you know, they got treated really badly by these creators. Absolutely. (laughs) To what extent do you think Valkyrie was supposed to be an analog to Wonder Woman? Do you think that she was introduced with that in mind, or...? That's a great question. I don't know what they were thinking whenever they introduced that character, because to me, it did really read like just a direct response to women's lib, basically. Mm -hmm. But you almost can't not be influenced by Wonder Woman in comics if you're going to make commentary on feminism, right? So it's like even if we don't agree or if we have any conflicting opinions on Wonder Woman or anything like that, you can't really talk about feminism in comics without her. And so I would have to think that somewhere along the line, and, you know, who knows? Who really knows, I guess. Right. There was a kind of funny joke in this issue that was an on-purpose funny moment, I think. (laughs) Which was kind of a rarity. Yeah. But the two movie roles that the Hulk was offered in this book... (laughs) actually did crack me up the uh the effects of gamma radiation on man in the moon marigolds and i am furious green Uh, 
I would watch the Hulk star in either of those movies. I am furious. Green is definitely one of the funniest things I've ever heard. And the fact that there isn't an I am furious green comic is a crime. It's very You'd think that they would just rush ahead into production on a like Swedish art film comic book about Hulk's sexual and political awakening. Oh my God, that's so slow paced and boring. And it's just like, right. <laughs> yes, those movies are were are so funny because they were so risque in their time and now you watch them and you're like this is like the worst porn I've ever seen. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm sure that I am furious green would be an even worse porn. <laughs> It absolutely would be, and I still totally want to watch it. I would, yeah, I mean, I couldn't stop myself. <laughs> I, I would also watch him in a, like, coming-of-age movie about growing up in an abusive household. Like, either yeah, one of exactly. those movie roles, I, I think, would, would be a highlight of the Hulk's career. <laughs> yeah, they would be. That is actually true. Those were really funny jokes. <laughs> Good job, Roy Thomas. We got to give credit where it's due. We just were mad at you through this entire episode. But right. You did make a funny joke. I'll give it up. There, there was a word bubble in this comic <laughs> that was on purpose pretty green. <laughs> As opposed to the not entirely on purpose stuff where I think you inadvertently made uh, Samantha Parrington fucking rad <laughs> Bahala, like i will never forget i will never forget it is really one of my favorite moments in all of comics and she does just beat the shit out of the hulk too she does. gives him a vulcan nerve pinch and knocks him out she, she's give me a hug bud <laughs> just vulcan nerve pinches him yeah no she, i loved her i thought she was so so good um if she could have been more of the comic, I think I would have really liked that. I wish that a lot of this uh, commentary got packed away. And yeah. We just got to see her throw down and call everybody a bunch of chauvinists. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, in both of these issues, like, Valkyrie obviously looms large in terms of the story. She's not really in them that much. She's not. Yeah, this is it. This is the thing. I was like, oh, this is great. Like, we're going to see way more of this character going forward, and she's going to be amazing. And then it's just like you read those first <laughs> Defenders, and you're like, yeah, this that, that didn't go the direction I thought it was going to at all. No, I still have hope. Yes. I gotta believe, because it's just, yeah, like we were talking about, it's just such a strong premise for a character that I think, in my mind, and yours, and a lot of readers they perhaps inadvertently created this amazing character. Yeah, I think it was mostly inadvertent. New Defenders gets really good. I grew up reading those comics. It was before my time, but I found a bunch of back issues, and Valkyrie really does hold up in a lot of places. Awesome. I'm looking forward to her, and I'm looking forward to seeing her interact with Moondragon. Oh my god. I read those issues a long time ago, and really with the entirety of the Defenders run, I was collecting and trying to put together a full run, so I would read the issues as I got them, so they'd all mm -hmm. be out of order, and I don't remember pretty much anything of them except for the general vibe of some parts. 
just the fact that they so clearly would be happier if they made out, I guess. Um, <laughs> but also just the dynamic between them. It's so fun to watch Moondragon just rip on Valkyrie oh. and be like, you know, you really haven't done much. You've been here for a while. I think that that's just great. Obviously, Moondragon is villainized a lot in the run because then she's the most feminist, right? Right. So <laughs> she's the most villainous. <laughs> And it kind of like, you know, softens Valkyrie, I think, for a lot of readers. But for me, I was just like, this is great. She's calling out all the things I didn't like about Valkyrie. <laughs> this is amazing. <laughs> and it's so, so good. And of course, it gets very, very queer after Hellcat and Valkyrie become really good friends. And, <laughs> you know, you start to see Valkyrie reacting incredibly jealous and all of that. So, I mean, that stuff's fun. You'll have a, a great time with that, I think. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. And honestly, I'm just looking forward to Moon dragon in general oh my god she showed up for the first time a few issues ago in a not great storyline exactly but, but she was still super fun in it i guess my one note for her would be like maybe she could go back to calling herself madam mcevil because that is an <laughs> awesome fucking name it's so good i mean i love moon dragon but i love madam <laughs> mcevil so much and you know, just everything about her is incredible. Like the bald head, the great, what is it, headband that she has that mm -hmm. like actually turns out to be really bad because it's Odin trying to control her. But it's really cool looking and giant green cape. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, Huge Dracula over... collar. Oh, wow. Yeah, no, I'm obsessed. She is amazing. And yeah, her interactions with Valkyrie are top notch because Valkyrie will be like, oh, this is all my fault. And <laughs> Moon Dragon's like, too true. <laughs> It's like, this is great. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Two queens. Well, you ready to move on into the minutiae? I am, yes. <laughs> Excellent. Rick, would you mind singing us in? We got minutiae. It's not the biggest part, it's just minutiae. Like Corey eating farts, we got minutiae. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. So we ended up trimming a couple of the categories because some of them didn't quite apply as this isn't really a Defenders issue. And also, we had so much to talk about. Mm -hmm. But what was your pie not made out of steel? What words <laughs> did you like, like you would like a pie, were it not made out of steel? Truly, what else could I possibly say other than up against the wall, <laughs> male chauvinist pigs? I mean... I mean, and in the second issue, it's 100% just the cover of the issue has the best words, which is totally her yelling about Mel Chauvinist pigs. I mean, she does on the first one, too. It's, it's so good. All right, girls, that finishes off these male Chauvinist pigs. Yes, Lady Liberators. Oh, my God. And what a name for a vibrator. Oh, absolutely. Ah. <laughs> Uh, patent pending, patent pending. Yes. <laughs> Make sure you mail yourself a copy of this podcast. So that... <laughs> oh my God. Yes. So that was mine. <laughs> uh, that was actually also mine. <laughs> I mean, what else are you going to do? You know, like you can't really go anywhere else. <laughs> yeah. There. I mean, there were some other good phrases in it. Honestly, the, the titular line from the first issue, come on in, the revolution's fine, <laughs> is so good. <laughs> It is. I've read it a hundred times and I still just belly laugh. Like, it's so good. Uh, and the scene that she walks into with that also, chef kiss. Yes, a hundred percent chef kiss. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Sounds like this might have come up in what we were talking about, but what was your favorite panel in either of these two issues? 
Yep. <laughs> it's definitely still just up against the wall male chauvinist pigs. Um, but I also really love ranting Enchantress at the end of Avengers 83, where she's just, men, men, I hate the men. <laughs> I do really love that. And it sticks in my head. And also gleeful Enchantress, as as we did bring up already. Yeah, I love just how fucking happy she looks. And like, she looks so good. That outfit, that Kirby outfit is just going to carry you through the rest of eternity because they make little modifications to it. But she pretty much always has that amazing outfit and she always looks great. It It is so good. Kirby's character design is so good. And unlike George Perez, who I think also does really interesting character design, other people drawing Kirby's character designs still looks good. <laughs> yeah. Only Perez can do Jericho, right? Like... Yeah. Yeah, I had a couple. The cop, I guess it was an Air Force sergeant, but when Samantha throws him in the river, it was just like, oh, I wasn't expecting that. It's this kind of a book? That's awesome. I like her even more. Yeah, that panel was great, and... The splash page of Come On In, The Revolution's Fine. The double page <laughs> of the Lady Liberators sitting around yes. the Avengers table is tremendous. Oh, yeah. No, where Valkyrie is just telling them everything wrong about their relationships with men. Uh-huh. <laughs> like She's like, look at this television screen. Look, I can point it out right now. Quicksilver sucks. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, this is great. It's the be- it's the, the most concise PowerPoint presentation of <laughs> you guys are getting hosed. And there's really no <laughs> refutation of that. She says later on, like, oh, I use some subtle spells to help convince you. It's like, I'm pretty sure by subtle spells, you just mean a PowerPoint presentation. <laughs> that is a subtle spell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's one I'm incapable of weaving. Okay, there's some fudging necessary in this, but every issue of a Defenders comic, or Defenders-adjacent comic book, has a best defender and a worst offender. So, in this, let's just throw it wide open, best character, worst character. Uh, who did you who did you have as your best defender in this? <laughs> I almost feel like the best defender and the worst offender are both Valkyrie. <laughs> <laughs> I can see that. No, you know who actually is the worst offender? Clint Barton. Yeah, he really is. He is such a piece of shit in this issue. (laughs) Sorry, Clint, but it's true. Like, even when the Scarlet Witch first shows up and he's like, you better run. Since I accidentally fell in some melted sidewalk, there's nothing (laughs) anyone could possibly do, but especially a girl. I know. It's like, that's the Scarlet fucking witch. Like, she kills him later, so it's okay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's that. (laughs) (laughs) She gets her revenge. He has a little comeuppance later. But yeah, he's also the character who at the very end of the book is like, uh, well, did you learn your lesson about how silly you wanting to have rights and not being treated like crap is? 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. Even then, Janet and Wanda both, like, give him the side eye. But, yeah, he is certainly the worst offender, I'm going to say. And then, you know, Samantha's parents aren't too fun. No. <laughs> some people I don't like in here, but mostly I'm going to pin it all on Clint because he's fun to blame for everything. I, I think that's a good call. And, yeah, conversely, <laughs> I had Valkyrie, but specifically the Samantha Parrington Valkyrie as yes. being the best defender. Yeah, she's fun. I mean, I also love the Enchantress. Same. Yeah, she's certainly not an offender. She's certainly one of the defenders on this <laughs> <Yep>. one. <laughs> I idolize her in these comics because she's just like, oh man, just the, the rants are so good. She's just having so much fun with it. <laughs> yeah, when's the last time you saw a villain have this much fun? I miss her. <laughs> I do too. Is, is she <laughs> is she still doing things in the Marvel universe? I have not Sometimes, been keeping track. But they just have never lived up to her promise. I don't think because you know they they went so hard on fleshing Loki out mm. finally, which is nice, you know. But I just think that yeah, Enchantress deserves so much better and. Yeah, we see her sometimes, but it's kind of all across the board. I wrote an article about her as well, because I, once again, I am obsessed. As well you should be. And yeah. I am, I'm sorry, but if, if Marvel's listening, hire Sarah to write that buddy comedy of Please. Valkyrie and the Enchantress. I would love to read a workplace sitcom with those guys. Sword or... fights all over the place. OSHA would not approve. <laughs> oh, no, they wouldn't. Not of anything <laughs> that those two would get up to. <laughs> but I would. <laughs> Literally not of anything. <laughs> well, in addition to a best defender and a worst defender, every issue of a Defender's comic book or a Defender's adjacent comic book has one character who has to act out of character in a way that furthers the plot. To paraphrase the fat boys from Crush Groove, they've just got to be a sucker. In this issue, who was your sucker? Who acted the most out of character? Almost the Hulk, right? Like, because I think that he was kind of acting like this fairly regularly around the time. But he is a little strange in this and also totally sexist. He gets away with it, in my opinion, just because Clint is way easier to hate. <laughs> but um, yeah, I don't know. He was still kind of a jerk. I didn't love it. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And, and I don't think of the Hulk as being a jerk. Uh, but you did mention Hulk as a sexist, which did appear on a picket sign, too. And I would be <laughs> remiss if I did not use the air horn. <laughs> To signal that this issue had some truly tremendous protest signs. <laughs> I want that on a t-shirt. <laughs> it's really good. And yeah, at first it's like, oh, she's just saying this Hulk is sexist to be spiteful. But yeah, he really is in this issue. It's not yeah. just his refusal to fight her because he won't fight a woman, which is a, a sentiment you see echoed by the Black Panther and the other Avengers in Avengers 83. But you also see, I think, uh, he says at the end, no one can defeat the Hulk, especially not a girl. And it's like, you could have ended the sentence a few words <laughs> earlier there, Hulk. <laughs> you didn't need to go yeah. so hard on that sentence. No, like... if no one can, then you don't need the especially. Yeah, also, we're talking about an adult, so not necessarily a girl, but yep. all right. Yeah, yep. the whole thing is just like, mm-mm. <laughs> 
<laughs> no thanks. Yeah, so I, I did think the Hulk was acting out of character there. And also, like we talked about, the way his dialogue was written was kind of jarring for me. Although I don't know what his character was as well at that point. Mm-hmm. So maybe that was on brand. I also kind of wanted to get your thoughts on the Enchantress because I'm less familiar with her as a character. Is it like her to just kind of lose interest and wander away at the end of a book the way she did in the second one? Because there's like the first issue, the 83, there's at least a little bit of hand waving as to what she was doing when the machine went kablooey. But in the Hulk, it's just (laughs) like, well... Looks like this is page 30 or whatever. Don't have to write a comic book anymore. Everybody goes home. Yeah, no, she does do that. And actually another instance that I can think of when she does do that is when she pops up in Dazzler and she's like, I'm going to have a singing competition with Dazzler. And Dazzler's oh. like, well, I'm, I'm Dazzler, so I'm going to win. And then she wins. And then Enchantress just gets mad and like blows through a wall and walks off. <laughs> Uh, so it is in character. Okay. I love that part of her and I wish she would do it more. <laughs> I like the idea of her just being like easily distracted. Yeah. She's like, you know what? I'm kind of over this. Bye. <laughs> she does it in Defenders 4 because there's that scene where Black Knight is all, but I loved you. And she's like, you were but upon nothing more. <laughs> and then just walks off and you're just like damn <laughs> i'm bored <laughs> Bye. Yeah, just, and it's like she's walking away in that outfit too so it's like every person is just watching her like walk away like just being like i guess i guess we all go home now <laughs> like it's just what were we doing <laughs> i i don't know but it i have fond memories um <laughs> yeah exactly it's all that that's that's what she did for a long time. And I think that there's something to be said about why that's kind of, yeah, she's vain and doesn't have an attention span and like all of the things, you know, where you're like, yeah, this is all still pretty sexist. But also it's just so fun to read that it's just like, take that away. <laughs> take the take the part that sex away. Take the part where it's always written by men away. Mm-hmm. And then we just have a really fun to read character. Well, okay, so... I guess that wasn't out of character for her, so I'm going to default to the Hulk being the sucker in this issue. Mm -hmm. uh, Because I don't want to think of him as being as sexist as he is written in this issue. I know. I just want him to love beans. (laughs) That's all I want the Hulk to do. It makes uh, his relationship with Betty really not as good, right? You're just like, oh. Yeah. Well, despite that, I still want to go with the premise that the Hulk rules. (laughs) Yes. And so in this issue, what are the Hulk's rules? What lesson would he learn? Like the G.I. Joe PSA at the end of a cartoon. Uh, (laughs) What did you have as the Hulk's rules that he's taking away from these comics? Oh, God. Don't fall asleep on the Statue of Liberty, I guess. Because it's like (laughs) it's going to turn into this whole thing if you do. Um. I think that's a very good rule. I'm tempted to go with, uh, don't invite Tom Wolf to any parties. Oh, God, yeah, that's probably, that's the salient rule that'll carry us through our lifetimes. Like, <laughs> that guy's not invited. <laughs> but uh, I, I think instead I'm going to go with, if you want to help someone, do it in the way that they ask for it, not in the way that you want to. 
Oh, yeah. And that, I think, is uh, encapsulated by the Hulk being handed a basket full of money and in a very fun scene actually saying, what has the Hulk to do with scraps of paper? Which is very <laughs> Shakespearean for the Hulk. That's true, yeah. But I like the idea of him having that be a takeaway. And that was also just kind of a fun scene. But honestly, probably the better rule is, yeah, just don't don't invite Tom Wolf to any parties. <laughs> He'll just write a New York Times article about it. <laughs> like, and stop inviting him to things. <laughs> Every fucking time, Tom. <laughs> so sick of this shit. And you never bring ice. You always say you're going to. You never bring ice, but you always have that typewriter. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he's absolutely the guy who's bringing a typewriter to a party. He's like, everybody else here is pretentious. <laughs> <laughs> Let me adjust these lensless glasses and <laughs> get out my typewriter. <laughs> well, Sarah, thank you so much for joining us. I had a wonderful time talking with you about these comic books. If people would like to see more of your work, and they should, where can they do that? Oh, yeah. So A, first, thanks for having me, because this was incredible. And as I said, I love these comics. So having the opportunity to actually talk about them, it's kind of just like put a nickel in and you just get two hours of conversation. I can be found at www.sarahcentury.com and www.twitter.com slash sarahcentury. Um, <laughs> If you're my grandma and you like seriously need me to HTTP. <laughs> so yeah, basically I have a website. I'm on Twitter. Those are both great places to find me talk about comics. I'm also a horror writer. So you can find me in various anthologies. One of the anthologies that I'm in right now is Fiend in the Furrows 2. So that one's up and it is published by Nose Touch Press. And also, of course, Bitches on Comics the funnest podcast that I get to do other than all of the many guest appearances, of course, <laughs> that I get to do. But yeah, those are the ones. Uh, Bitches on Comics is on all of the podcast platforms. So, And you should definitely listen to it. I've been just going through the back catalog and Sarah and Essie Fleener, who co-hosts the show, are just so much fun and so knowledgeable and just really funny and smart and great to listen to. And you should. Thank you. Thank you for being those things. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and of course, I love this podcast. So thanks once again. I've been listening for a really long time, so oh. it was nice to be on. Well, thank you. If you would like to get into touch with us at Tighten Up the Defense, you can do so via our P.O. Box at Tighten Up the Defense, P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon 97294. Or, as this is the future, we can be reached electronically at ttwasteland at gmail.com. We're also all up in the uh, social medias, so you can type in Tighten Up the Defense, and if you spell Titan, T-I-T-A-N, uh, and you scroll past all the stuff that's about a certain Tennessee football team, then uh, <laughs> you can find us there. Or if you can't find us there, hey, look inside your heart. <laughs> Just yell, Valhalla! <laughs> <laughs> and either I, or more likely Sarah, will just show up. <laughs>
We have a Patreon. That's patreon.com slash ttwasteland. If you donate, you get access to a bunch of bonus material, including What the Duck, a podcast most foul but with a W because he's a duck. That's the full name of the show, which is a monthly podcast that I co-host with my wife, Lisa, where we talk about Steve Gerber comics, uh, which <laughs> I am increasingly sorry for subjecting her to. They Man, they started off fun. yeah i know what you mean though (laughs) it's yeah we got sucked in with the uh the defenders howard the duck giant size treasury and then after we got past the early like man thing issues and uh stopped giggling at the name giant size man thing um which (laughs) did take quite some time yes there's been some really rough stuff in there (laughs) oh yeah But you get access to all of those podcasts, and also I've been doing a bunch of short video reviews of various classic comic books, so if you want access to all that material, uh, check us out on Patreon, but mostly it's just a really nice way for you to let us know that you like what we're doing and would like us to continue doing it. So yeah, thanks again for joining us, Sarah, and uh, until next time, Valhalla! Valhalla! (laughs) Up against the wall, (laughs) chauvinist pigs! (laughs) Bye. Yeah.